0: Now, Hannah Rosen, it's a treat to have her with us today. She's a writer, she's an author, she's a mother. She lives in Washington, D.C., and she's one of those fabulous creatures in the U.S. who writes a series of provocative, heavily investigated, well-reported magazine pieces that have consistently created a, I was going to say national, but global debate. Um, She's also a founder of... Double X, which is a site which is connected to Slate, which is excellent, written for the Washington Post, New York Magazine, The New Yorker. Now, some of her recent pieces have been about the case against breastfeeding, a boy's life, about a transgender boy, and circumcision. And then in 2010, there was a story titled The End of Men, which was really provoked by a look at what was happening to men and women during the recession when finally there was a tipping point um, in the American workforce and the enormous implications of that about what does it mean to be a man and what does it mean to be a woman and this is why it is dangerous because she says you know, if we don't have any more fixed roles, the very rigid rigid story we believed about ourselves is no longer true. There is no natural order of being a man and a, a woman, there is just the way things are. She says that she started the book thinking that we were heading to a more, if it was a more female age, it was going to be a more tender age. But she then abandoned that because she says the assumption that women would bring in this tenderness is just a story we tell ourselves to make the current massive upheavals in gender roles seem tamer and more predictable when they are anything but. More like revolutionary, potentially exhilarating and sometimes frightening. But altogether inevitable. So, the least we can do is see them clearly. So, to help us see them clearly, welcome Hannah Rosen.
1: Um, I'd like to especially thank the men out there. I'm really pleased to see so many men out there. Uh, it might give you some comfort to know that, uh, although I've been speaking about this book for a few months, uh, my husband does not hate me. <laughs> or actually, he only hates me for the usual reasons, like, you know, I lose my keys or the dishwasher or I go to Australia for a week and leave him alone with our three children. Uh, LAUGHTER <clears throat> And to the women out there, uh, I'd like to extend my condolences to all of you women out there who are still barren, which is a word that we only see in the Bible and in Australian political culture. (laughs) Honestly, when I read that, barren, I was like, I have not heard the word barren (laughs) used in kind of normal dialogue in many, many years outside of my synagogue. Um... Hannah was barren, you know. Anyway, so I'd like to begin by talking about some research that actually didn't make it into the book. One of the first things I did when I started thinking about this was to interview couples who are part of this phenomenon which we call the alpha wife which, or other words, the breadwinner wife. The definition of such a wife is very simple. This is a, a woman in a couple. can be a married couple or just a couple, in which the wife makes more money than the husband. No big deal, um, but it actually is a big deal, because you know, as early as the 1970s, this was an extraordinarily rare phenomenon. It was like something like four percent of all couples, and now it's like in the 45 percent of all couples. And that doesn't even count the single moms who are, you know, the sole breadwinners of their family, which in America, at least, is the fastest growing segment of the population. So you can imagine a range of reactions that the couple might have to this. Julia was talking earlier about this being confusing, exhilarating. So I'm going to start with a guy. Uh, the reason I picked this couple, click, click. If a man were here, <laughs> he could fix this for me. Anyway. So, the reason I picked this couple is because uh, it's it's like the type of situation that burns the most. Of the dozens of couples I interviewed, they worked at the same firm, they started at the same time, and then she just got promoted more quickly than he did. And so after a few years, she's making something like $8,000 more than he does not a huge amount of money but like it's enough to make him feel bad you know or at least to make him feel something you can imagine he feels you know relieved maybe he's happy that she makes more money because they need the money or maybe he's emasculated you know he has a lot of different feelings so i'm going to read you what this actual guy said my wife and i both started at the same it company straight from college and after a few years she overtook me professionally I sat around thinking maybe she had better opportunities or some great breaks, but the reality is she worked harder, she was more organized, and she made better use of her time. There's nothing to ascribe it to except, she's better than me. (laughs) The most painful moment was when we were at a party and one guy turned to us and said, you guys are doing great, Andrea, you're a vice president, and Bill, well, we don't know what you are. I laughed along with everyone else, but eight years later I can still remember that moment very clearly. It was like, wow, I'm the naked emperor here. It's not that I wish she was less successful, it's that I wished I was less unsuccessful. It's a guy thing, it sucks to be beaten up by a woman. This book started out in, uh, in the Atlantic magazine in the year 2010. And in the early days, I was thinking mostly about economic changes, sort of what's the broad you know, landscape of the economy and how it's changing from a manufacturing economy. But as I did more research, I became more interested in, in the nitty gritty, kind of how does this affect one woman and one man facing each other in a single marriage? What does this do to human relationships, to decisions that, say, young women make about who they're going to marry or, you know, how we feel about our husbands and wives? So now, before I go on to the big picture, I wanna read you what the woman in this relationship thinks. Now, I got such diverse reactions from women in these kind of alpha wives that I decided I wanna give you two different kinds of alpha wives, not the actual one that's presented here. So here's the resentful alpha wife. Since earning my law degree in 1989, I have felt hunted like a deer by men as a desirable wife because of my wage earning capability and good job. I'll never forget my good friend's husband announcing at their wedding reception, now that I've married a lawyer, I won't have to work anymore. And he didn't. That's the resentful one. Now we'll find the delighted one. I'm the one who's career oriented. I don't wanna come home to someone I have to compete with. Let's see, who can climb to the top of the ladder? Who can make the most money? I was so sick of it. I wanted someone who didn't wanna talk about their job all day, but who would rather go for a ride on the beach. So his making less money was kind of a plus for me. So as you can see, and this is true of my book in general, it's often read as like a feminist, like we crushed you guys, but it's actually not like that. It's more sort of me describing these sociological shifts, which I noticed, and I think the way you react to them entirely depends on where you're from. So I don't know how how many of you know America that well, but like one of my chapters is reported in Alabama in the deep South where, you know, the women are making more money than the men because it's a manufacturing town. And this goes down really hard. I mean, a nice wife just lays the paycheck down on the table, doesn't say a word, and doesn't make her husband feel bad about it and sort of goes about her business. Uh, And then I get other letters from these stay-at-home dads. And again, I don't think you guys will get this joke because you don't know the American landscape as well. But, you know, I recently got a letter from a dad saying, you know, what are you guys talking about? So cool. You know, I'm a stay at home dad. Everyone applauses me. And then I looked where he was from and he was from Portland. So if any of you watch Portlandia, you know that that's not like the typical American situation. Okay. Let's see if a woman can operate this. No, she can't. Go. Yes, okay, so here's when I started doing the work, which is in 2009, you guys faced a similar situation. I just read today in the Sydney Morning Herald about the revival of the housing industry. But when I start to do this uh, research, we have terms like the great man session and the great he session, where you notice in the bottom quote, three quarters of the job losses since the beginning of 2008 fell on men. Uh, if you look at the charts of men's labor force participation and women's labor force participation, they run in exactly opposite ways. So that men's labor force participation is now the lowest that it's ever been ever in history. So in 1950, say one in 20 men were not in the labor force. Now it's one in five men in the U.S. And if you look over the century, you see men's income slowly uh, declining and women's income slowly rising, even though they haven't matched. There still is a wage gap, and I'm sure some angry person is going to ask me about the wage gap, and I will be happy to talk about it, but not yet. Not yet, not yet. I'm on the stage now, damn it. I get to control the conversation. Okay, so that was happening with men. What's happening with women? This is all 2009. uh, uh, so, So the most shocking thing that happened in 2009 was that women became the majority of the workforce. This is like incredibly huge shift in world history. Now they sort of hover around like 48%, sometimes 50%. When I was a child in the 80s watching TV, the working woman was such a cool, interesting phenomenon that there was like 10 sitcoms devoted to her existence. So it's like, whoa, she has a briefcase. That's so cool. Wow, she's wearing a suit, you know, and now here we are, not that long later, and women are the majority of the workforce. So that in and of itself is a huge transformation. Uh, Then there's these other things. Wives begin to take over as top family earners. That's the alpha wives I was telling you about. The bottom statistic, which will become relevant a little later in my speech, somebody did a broad census analysis of the entire U.S., uh, all they, they divided it into 2,000, 2000 major reason, regions and they found that in 1,997 of those regions, young childless women earn more than young childless men. Now, of course, like, they're young and childless, so they don't know anything yet, like they haven't, you know, dealt with children or the glass ceiling. Nonetheless, this is really, really significant. That at The moment that men and women are kind of viewing each other, making decisions about who to marry, kind of, you know, just making these big life choices, women are have a median income that's higher than men. Why is this happening? Um, We have... The big, big, broad trend is the end of manufacturing and shifting to a service and information econ- economy, and a technology-driven economy. Uh, in the old economy, men had a natural advantage, just like an upper-body strength advantage, which they have entirely lost. And so, so there's no natural reason now why why kind of men have won over women. Um, another thing that happens is what I call the traveling sisterhood which means that as more women enter the workforce at the top, uh, as doctors, as lawyers, as physicians, I have a chapter about physicians and how that uh, that, that profession has entirely changed. What happens is they open up jobs, low paying jobs at the bottom, for the kinds of things that wives used to do for free, meaning childcare, elder care, food preparation, service. So, so it becomes this kind of cycle where you have sort of high earning women letting in low earning women, and it sort of goes around and around. And then the most important one, which is true basically in every country in the world, it's certainly true here, here it's true to the exact extent that it is in the US, uh, which is education. Uh, we live in a world in which a college degree is re- required to do almost anything. Uh, and for every three degrees that women earn, men earn too. Uh, men have not changed uh, their, their degree earning in, in, since, the, since the 70s, while women have continued to earn more and more degrees. And I'm not saying it's great that you need a college degree degree to do everything it's just a fact of the modern economy so uh, here is my uh, we are going to listen to the world's expert explain why women earn more degrees than men okay play the video please the so girls are obviously smarter i mean They have much larger vocabulary. They learn much faster. They are more controlled on the board today for losing recess tomorrow. Only only boys. And why is that? Showing they were just not listening to the class while the girls sat there very nicely and did that. Uh, That is my daughter. She is not even remotely that cute anymore because she is now a preteen and so there's a large, large difference for all of you who have children between 10 and 12. She would, if she knew I was still showing this video, she would kill me, so don't anyone tell her that she's still part of my talk. She's also completely wrong. It's not that girls are smarter than boys. Uh, What she says at the end, I think, is slightly more relevant. Uh, There is what has been called a boy crisis in the U.S. and in England and in most English-speaking countries. It begins when kids are very young. There's a certain degree of discipline required in schools, which developmentally, it's difficult for boys to live up to that. There's a large degree of testing and expectation that starts when boys are very young. And so the boys I interview for my book, uh, basically, as I summarize it, they have this feeling that school is rigged against them, that the system is somehow not made for them, which is the opposite. I think, you know, girls were always better at school than boys, but boys never had the feeling that the the system was rigged against them. They sort of figured, okay, so what if the boys get in trouble? We all understand they're going to take over the world anyway. But since that assumption is not necessarily true anymore, the boys really do suffer. This whole thesis came home to me when I was uh, visiting a college in Kansas City, totally working class state college, I was not looking for like Bryn Mawr, like a liberal elite college where all the feminists were like, that's not where I was going. Totally mainstream state college. In fact, I went even one more, I did not go to the Women's Studies Center, but I went to find sorority girls. I like purposely looked up, do you guys have sororities here? You know, you know, I'm like cheerleaders, okay, however you want, like, you know, girly girls. I purposely went to find girly girls so people would Accuse me of like just going to the feminist studies class. Uh, And when I was in college, uh, the natural assumption uh, of of me and my friends was this kind of happy feminist equality. It was like, I'll work and my husband will work. You know, I'll raise the kids and he'll raise the kids. I'm not saying it worked out that way. I'm just saying that was the general feminist assumption. Now, when I went to this college, they basically talked about the boys that they were dating or their fiance's, like they were children. Like he has, I have to drag him to the job office and he's changed his major 16 different times. And like, what am I gonna do with him? And when I become a doctor, I guess he's just gonna have to stay home and take care of the kids. It was like a whole different way of thinking about boys. And here is a quote from one of the girls, sorority girl, cheerleader girl about boys. Come on, Hannah. Men are the new ball and chain. I did not make that up. That's a sorority girl said that. Okay, guys, I'm going to get a little bit meaner before I get nicer, but it will come around. It will come around. I promise it will come around. Uh, For a long time, this was the image of... Come on, Hannah. Ooh, no, go back. This was the image of American manhood. Now you know the joke, which dominated, you know, tough, rugged, in charge of the pioneer. Australians have a version of this. He might as well be Australian. And then he was replaced by this much less impressive specimen, <laughs> which is a parody of American manhood, uh, because basically we, like, Amer- the rugged man exists in quotation marks, right? It's just, it's just a hard thing to take earnest and seriously these days. Um, And it's very funny, but you know, the phrase firstborn son, for example, is so deeply ingrained in our consciousness that I decided to explore it. And one thing I did was go to fertility clinics and ask what, because fertility clinics that are doing new, new methods have to report to our central agency, you know, what people are asking for. And so I asked them, you know, do people ask for boys and girls? It turned out that 75% of couples were requesting girls, which is really, really amazing. Uh, and my favorite statistic in my whole book comes from South Korea, which is insanely patriarchal, remains insanely patriarchal, and yet, because women have risen so quickly in universities and in, and, and in industries, um, they, ha- they, are, they have completely reversed the preference for the firstborn son. They keep very uh, good statistics on this, and you'll find them in my book. They've been doing it year after year. And in the last two years, the majority of South Korean couples say they would rather have a girl than a boy what's driving this? What's the essential difference? If my daughter is wrong that uh, girls are smarter than boys, then what actually is going on? So I thought about this for a long time, and the best I could come up with is a concept I call plastic woman and cardboard man. What do I mean by that? Except that women are superheroes and... Um, no, it's not what I mean. The quality the economists tend to look for is something they call adaptability. So the thing that's needed basically to succeed in an economy like this of part-time workers, where things are always shifting, where there's no loyalty to industry, is essentially an ability to hustle. So if you know that the industry's shifting and the new kinds of things are healthcare jobs, you have to be willing to get the skills and education you need to get those healthcare jobs. And that's what I think is driving women to succeed in this economy. Because, and, and a lot of this is because women have been the underdogs. Because I think when you're the underdog for a long time, you naturally learn to hustle. And so it's something like what in business they call disruptive technology. When you take the underdog or something that's behind and that underdog is always hustling and trying to fit in the cracks. And suddenly the qualities that they show in abundance become the qualities that are the most, uh, the most desired. So maybe we're like the Apple computers of humanity, women are. Okay, I can't do this as well as Dan Savage, but we are gonna talk about sex a little bit. Uh, So in the US we talk a lot about the hookup culture, uh, and I think we're uh, a little more prudish than you are in general. And so there's this overwhelming sense probably less sexist, but probably more prudish. That's, that would be my short summary of it. But I think that, um, I think that, um, well, that barren thing, I mean, that really, it's like nobody would ever get away with that thing. It's calling some po- woman politician baron. Anyway, so, so, but we're prudes. So anyway, so one of the things we talk about a lot in the U.S. is the hookup culture. And um, this idea that That the hookup culture, meaning a culture where you no longer ask somebody on a date, but where people are just sort of having some kind of physical intimacy without any kind of commitment or certainly any kind of long-term commitment, there's a lot of hand-wringing going on about this in the U.S. And the reason people are upset about it is because they assume it's terrible for women. That this is a system created by men for men so that they can get lucky whenever they want to get lucky and the women uh, sit in their dorm rooms and cry. So that's like the image, you know, that's what we think is going on with the hookup culture. So it didn't strike me as quite right. And I read like all the books there were to read about the hookup culture. And basically they go and interview, you know, woman after woman and and the women on the college campuses do say this sucks, you know, like the guys won't commit. This is really unpleasant. So you kind of do get that blowback. And then I found the one fabulous, long-term, in-depth study about the hookup culture. To women out there in the audience my age, uh, you will now understand the sacrifices one has to make as an academic. Uh, So these women, there were two of them, they lived in a party dorm at a Midwestern university for four years. (laughs) So like that Drew Barrymore movie, you know, where she goes back. She's like, you know, she's like maybe 24 when she goes back to college. Like these women were 42. So that's embarrassing. (laughs) So they lived in this college dorm for four years, and yes, they got all that stuff that every other hookup book gets, which is, you know, yeah, the guys don't want to commit. But what they realized after four years is that effectively the women were avoiding getting committed to. Because now you can remember that statistic I told you about how women's median incomes are higher than men's. At that age, women are at their most ambitious, and what they care about is getting ahead in life, finding a good job. I mean, the first age of marriage in Australia is 30, which is phenomenally high, so you guys must know what I'm talking about. People get married later and later, and it's because they wanna set themselves up well in life. So the girls would tell the researchers, you know, yeah, this guy is asking me out, but like, you know, being that serious with someone would be the equivalent of a four-credit class, and I just have too many classes right now, so I can't handle it. They would talk in these really like utilitarian ways, you know I mean it is the death of young love, but still they would you know they would talk in these very sort of opportunistic ways about the cost of a relationship and what it would cost them and how much they didn't want to you know get into it so I actually wrote this, um, this chapter of my book I wrote up in the Atlantic Magazine and, and got tons of letters from young women. And I, and I really would like to read one of them because, because what, what, what she's, what they said to me, what they effectively transmitted to me was, Hannah, you, you only got it half right. Um, you're right that, uh, that we don't really want to be in long-term committed relationships, uh, but you know what? We don't really like one-night stands either. Both of these things are true. So we, I'm going to define to you these kinds of relationships, which your 40-year-old self can't imagine, but which are going on now. So, so, so here's what she wrote. We want a person to hook up with, but also to hang out with, but none of the stifling constraints and stodgy strictures of the old-school boyfriend-girlfriend commitment. We don't want to be compelled by expectation to do each other's laundry or bring each other chicken soup when one of us is sick. We don't even want to see each other every day and watch a sappy movie on a Friday night and snuggle. Here she is describing my whole life, but that doesn't matter. (laughs) I'm a big person. I can get over that. Yes, some of us want that, but not every night and not every weekend. We certainly don't want these relationships to be entered into with an expectation of long-term or get in the way of other important things in our lives. We, both men and women, are putting ourselves first. Some might call it selfish. We call it smart and independent and secure. So that to me was a whole new view of what, in the age of the rise of women, kind of a new way of understanding women's sexuality, of not understanding them entirely as victims in this kind of culture that's emerging, but as as people who are sort of smart and secure enough to use it to get what they want and to sort of dip in and out of it when they need to, but not always to be victims. Okay, that's the young women. Now let's move on to marriage. So. The rise of women is having an incredibly significant effect on marriage patterns, not just in the U.S., but all over the world. But it's doing that in not just different ways, depending on social class, but completely opposite ways. So in the elite educated marriages, classes, I mean, have invented a concept which I, I call personally the seesaw marriage. What's the seesaw marriage? So if we live in a world of alpha wives where it is perfectly possible for the woman to be the main breadwinner of the family. And that's not such a shocking phenomenon anymore. Seesaw marriage captures the idea that men and women can take turns carrying the family or earning the most money. Uh, And so so, for example, uh, Barack and Michelle Obama have a classic seesaw marriage. When he was in law school and uh, working in public service, Michelle Obama was a top healthcare executive and she was making much more money than he was and carrying the family financially. Then, of course, he becomes the president and you know she's you know, seen as his supportive person because she's the first lady. Uh, but then Barack Obama always gives speeches and says, okay, when I'm done, it's Michelle's turn again. So it's that idea that nobody's locked into the position, nobody's locked at home, nobody's locked at work. Uh, if you remember, if any of you read The Feminine Mystique or kind of remember the general ethos of the early 60s, the problem then was that women felt like they were sort of locked at home Making the bed sheets. She didn't call them bed sheets. She called them slip covers. Anyway, I didn't really know. I had to look up what a slip cover was. So far am I from that era? I was like, is that a pillowcase or is a slip cover something? Anyway, the idea was that women were locked at home, and you know, you got the same feeling from the men in novels like *Revolutionary Road*, where the men felt like they, they were these organization men trapped at work, and they just had to like earn and earn and earn and earn. And there was even this concept around in 1962 that if you weren't married and earning by a certain age, which back then was like 24, then you must be a homosexual. Uh, True. That was true in the psychology of the early 60s. So the seesaw marriage kind of wipes away that idea. Nobody feels trapped. And in fact, what's happened is for elite classes, and by that I mean people with a full-time college degree, have the lowest divorce rates they've had in decades, the highest rates of marriage happiness. You know, so these are long-term surveys. How happy are you in your marriage? The highest rates of uh, of, of happiness, and and a, a minuscule chance of uh, being single parents. It's just lower than it's ever been. Now, if you look at everyone else's marriages, meaning people without a college degree it's the exact opposite picture. Um, you basically have people, not just divorce rates, which are exactly as high as they were in the 1970 divorce revolution, but basically nobody getting married. Um, and, when, and I don't know where Australia falls in this. I, fi- I figured this out for Europe. Europeans, when they don't get married, it's not actually that significant because a lot of times people live together for long-term even, they, even though they don't get married. But Americans are like marriage obsessed. So when Americans are not getting married, it actually means something thing. So people are having children, not marrying the man they're having children with, and it's the ball and chain problem. Like when I was reporting the number, cause I did a lot of my reporting in kind of working class and lower middle class communities because that's just like, as far as I'm concerned, that's like a world turned upside down in, in terms of gender roles. Like in the upper classes, it's slightly more complicated, but if you go in the vast 70% of kind of middle and working class, it's like you're living in a different country in terms of what men do and what women do. Um, but the number of times I, I mean, the number of times I had this conversation. So how come you're not, I, I opened my book with an anecdote like this, how come you're not married to the father of your child? It's really nice to be a reporter because you get to ask these asshole nosy questions. It's like, (laughs) what business is it of yours lady? But anyway, I do ask these questions. And you know, the answer that comes back to me more than any other answer is because he'd be just another mouth to feed. Again, we're back to this idea of women thinking of the men in their lives as like, you know, yet another child that they have to take care of. Is this the men's fault? No, it's like the economy has fallen apart. A lot of men aren't working uh, and we haven't figured out how to kind of put families together who are not officially fathers. So where are we now? This is a discussion that we're gonna gonna have more more deeply in a panel later, but I do wanna talk a little bit about it. Um, You know, women are now TV anchors. You had a prime minister who was a woman, bank presidents, corporate CEOs, scatologically savvy comedians, you know, women do all sorts of things. Uh, nonetheless, And and before I get to that, we we also are like transforming our notion of what it means to be a good leader, which is also important. If you read leadership books from the 60s and 70s, they basically describe a good leader like a battle commander—you know, someone who takes a lot of risks, someone who issues orders. Now we don't talk that way anymore. When we talk about a good leader, the the business school people wouldn't put it this way, but we do incorporate a lot of traditionally feminist principles, like you know, you have to you have to motivate your team, and you have to be like a coach and you have to inspire them to work together and you have to listen to what people are saying and so our idea of what makes a good leader has has transformed in such a way that it is no longer unfriendly to women. That said, now we come to the barren question. We as a culture and as a global culture are still very uncomfortable with the idea of dominant aggressive female power. We are in this transition period where it doesn't really sit well with us. How do I know this? Because it's been studied endlessly. So in the late 90s and the early 2000s, I don't know if these books made it here, but there was a series of books called Nice Girls Don't Get the Corner Office. And it basically, you know, it was like an earlier version of Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. It was, like, it was basically like you have to push, you have to be more aggressive. Here, I'll read you one of the sentences from them. If you worry about offending others and back down too easily and otherwise insist on workplace displays of girlish behavior all of you who bake cookies in the office, chides Lois Franco, then you are sabotaging your career. So her message was pretty clear, right? We told this was the era, right after the era of the power woman, we're telling people that they have to like, you know, go out there and push and ask for a raise. Well, when women started doing this, really bad things started to happen. Because, like, you know, people calling them barren. Because as it turns out, uh, the culture is not ready to accept women behaving in this way. There was a series of studies done at Harvard and at NYU, um, the Andrea James studies, and they were done in a million different ways, and every single result is depressing. So you take a resume, and you give one resume, they're exactly the same, you describe the same job history, except one is called Andrea, and one is called James. Or you do two videos of people asking for a raise in the exact same language, with the same facial expression, the same age, one person is called Andrea, one person is called James. The questions the researchers asked is two questions would you give the person a raise and do you want to hang out would you do you want to work with this person does this person seem like a nice person in almost every single case the man got the raise the woman didn't the man is like the coolest guy ever who you want to play golf with and you know uh have a beer with and the woman is a bitch that's what happened every time and so This is really depressing. It turns out that women can't just go out there and stop baking cookies and bust balls and it's all going to work out okay. It doesn't work out okay. Luckily, right before I published my book, the same researchers who did all these Andrea James studies went back at the question and they said, so what are we going to do? Like, we live in this weird era where women are rising faster and faster in management positions, where we really want them to get ahead, and yet when they behave in certain ways, they get penalized. And so they workshopped certain scripts. And I'm going to read you guys these scripts, and you're going to vote on which one you think is the good script. The idea here is we are a woman, we are a young woman, and this young woman is asking for a raise. And these researchers ran three different scripts about how she could ask for a raise, and you guys are going to vote on which one works. I'll see how smart you are, and then I'll explain why it's the right answer. Okay, let's go. Number one, I think I should be paid at the top of that range and I would also like to be eligible for an end-of-the-year bonus, number one. Number two, I hope it's okay to ask you about this. I'd feel terrible if I offended you in doing so. Number three, I don't know how typical it is for people at my level to negotiate, (coughs) but I'm hopeful that you'll see my skill at negotiating as something important I bring to the job. Okay, so number one is I think I should be paid at the top of the range. Two is I hope it's okay to ask you about this. Three is I don't know how typical it is for people at my level to negotiate. Who votes for number one? I think I should be paid at the top of the range. Okay, we have a few. That's like 20% of you guys. Who votes for I hope it's okay to ask you about this? 10%. And who votes for, I don't know how typical it is for people at my age. Oh, you're so smart. Australians are so smart. <laughs> if we could all be like Australians. Okay. Now I'm going to explain why that's the right answer. <clears throat> and I've since interviewed many, many women, including Cheryl Sandberg, who said this is precisely exactly what she does when she asks for a raise. Here's why it works. Because... You have to think about this as there are stereotypes and you get penalized for violating those stereotypes. So if the stereotype for women is they have to be helpful, think about it this way. Imagine you're at a school and a woman comes to the school and she barges into the principal's office and she says, you know, my kid is in the wrong class and you have to switch my kid and put them in the right class because you're not doing right by my kid. That does not violate, even though she's being totally aggressive and dominant, that does not violate any of our expectations for how women behave. Why? Because she's being aggressive on behalf of somebody else. So the stereotype gets triggered. I mean, the, the, the uncomfort, the discomfort, which I call the twitch, gets triggered by men and women, by the way. Women are equally uncomfortable when women are advocating on behalf entirely of themselves. But if women say, look, you wanna hire me to negotiate for your company, I'm gonna show you how good I am at that by starting by negotiating for myself. So the deal is, and this is annoying, the researchers said we were so annoyed at how anti-feminist our message ended up being. Nonetheless, this is what they found. So long as you say that what you want also aligns with the needs of the company, you're okay. So do what you will with that. I'm not saying it's cool or feminist, it's totally not. I'm just saying, this is what they found. So I'll give you another example. Uh, Somebody came to these researchers because they also do consulting advice and said, I am a manager, and a guy working for me, one of my underlings, I just discovered, makes more money than I do. And this is infuriating. Like, I just want to kill them. How dare they pay someone who works for me more money than I get paid? I'm just going to go in there and just rip them a new one and tell them they're a bunch of sexist bastards, which which your prime minister did so beautifully that, like, I, I just... I want want to just own that strategy for a minute, even though it's not what I'm about to say is the right strategy, because she was so good. Anyway, so, 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 okay. So she says, so the advice they gave them, but this is a corporate setting. It's a little bit different than a political setting. So she says, if you go in there and rip them a new one, all you're doing is reinforcing their ideas about you, that you're a victim and you don't know how to handle yourself. In fact, what you need to do is say this, I think that you really don't wanna be running a company where underlings make more money than the people they work for because that's really destabilizing and could cause a lot of problems for your company. (laughs) Pretty good. That's pretty good, right? So you're not going in there screaming and yelling. Who knows if your boss is a sexist, you know? You're just telling it like it is. So that's the questions we have to deal with after the end of men. So where do we want to go? I'm going to skip some of these. Where do we want to go after the end? That's a little bit of sugar. Oh, sorry. Where do we want to go after the end of men? Um, I certainly uh, do not want men to disappear and go away because I like them. <laughs> I have a husband. I have a, uh, two sons. I have a brother, a dad, all these people I love very much. So what we want to do is like really look closely at these questions that we started out with. How much can we handle these changes in society? How much can we open our minds and get used to the idea that this is coming and we should accept it and and be less freaked out by it? So one thing, is we have to make a situation where people pay less of a price for crossing gender lines so if you take a broad menu of character traits and some of them are traditionally masculine dominant aggressive reckless some of them are traditionally feminine you know nurturing helpful that if you happen to be a woman who wants to be aggressive and dominant, we want to move to a place where you don't have to hide that as much. And if you happen to be a guy who's, like, nurturing, wants to stay home with your kids, whatever, we want to move towards a place where you don't pay such a high penalty for that. Uh, And one thing I've noticed since I've written this book is that pop culture has helped us a lot with this. There's Katniss. Come back, Katniss. Come back, come back. Katniss. There. Okay. Okay. Did you all read The Hunger Games? Yes? Because you should have read it already. So if I'm gonna spoil this for you, it's too bad because they've been out a long time. So here's Katniss Everdeen. She's the heroine of the story. She is a traditional male hero. She is the provider for her family. She is the protector. She is the aggressor, the reluctant killer. She is really a classic male hero. She's also deeply unpleasant. She doesn't want to please anybody. Um, She's not nice to be around and nobody likes her. I mean, all of her characteristics are traditionally male characteristics. (laughs) Oh my God, I never even realized how obnoxious that was until you left. Says a lot about me. Anyway, the the guy she ends up with, and here's the spoiler, PETA, at the end of the book, she ends up with PETA. PETA, um, who's her boyfriend, he, he's, he is the nurturer, he's the baker, he's the romantic, he's the one who smooths things over, he waves, you know, he's he plays sort of a classic feminine role in their relationship. And the really cool thing about Katniss and Peeta is that I notice all the stuff, like I'm telling you about it, you know, it isn't cool, isn't it interesting, but my daughter who's now 12 and has read all these books, it's not like she comes to me and says, oh mom, they're really scrambling up the gender roles and it's so interesting. She doesn't even notice. To her it's like, sure, whatever, Katniss has a bow and arrow, like what's the big deal? It doesn't even occur to her that there would be something odd and I think that's because we've had a few years of pop culture like you know, Angelina Jolie and Salt, we've had a lot of like a you know traditionally male roles being given to women that role was actually written for a man in salt and then given to Angelina Jolie so we've had you know several situations like that girls have played like aggressive soccer for many many years and so so it's not such a foreign concept to her so maybe she won't have to follow that stupid script when she's older um, by the way, I make my daughter a uh, poor thing when, she's like, uh, when she gets babysitting jobs and sort of house-sitting jobs. I make her negotiate for more money, even if it's like from $10 to $11, merely so those words won't seem sort of foreign and unfeminine coming out of her mouth. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, this is for the older ladies in the crowd, just so you don't think it's only young women who get to carry guns. Everyone of every age can kick ass. Um, what about the men? How, how, how much can we accept? This one is actually harder because the truth is that when I was talking about plastic women, over the course of a century, women have changed their bearing and role in the public sphere dramatically just about every decade. And every time it happens, there's a TV show to talk about it, like Murphy Brown and then Sex and the City. Okay, cool, we can all talk about sex now. And then you have girls. Oh, we can talk about sex in incredibly lewd and vulgar ways. It's like women change and change and change and change and men don't change all that much. Um, and so one of the things I did for my research is look at 50 years of sitcom history. And what you find is that from the origins of the American sitcom, if you put a man in a domestic situation, he's a total moron. So that's like Homer Simpson, right? Like He just like blows up the toaster and gives his children really stupid advice. It's like a classic American archetype of the sitcom. Now, why do you think we do this? We do this because we, we, we it's not like pop culture has a political agenda. It just it just like channels the subconscious. And what that message is telling us is that that's not the natural place for men. If we're going to put men at home, they damn well better be idiots just so you all understand they don't belong there. And now lately, and I mean lately like since I wrote this book, this has changed dramatically. So we have got a series of sitcoms. This is just one of them called up night uh where men are in domestic situations they're home taking care of their kids and there's like seven of these tv shows in the latest tv season guys with kids men with kids bachelors with kids it's just like it's like the new cool thing in television and in this case he's a stay-at-home dad and i actually had a very early screener of this because it was based on my end of men story um the idea came from my end of men story and And in the original scripts, they they had him be a Homer Simpson moron. Like the first scene was him watching a hockey game or playing a video game or something like that. And the baby's like slowly tipping off the couch and, you know, the diaper's full of pee and he's not even noticing, which is like the classic, you know, sitcom situation. But over time, because people have been talking about gender roles, they've gotten more confident with this character. So he is now embodies all the parental wisdom And not only that, but he remains sexy to his wife. Like he has not paid a price of emasculation in order to be a decent father and be at home. Um, And so that is what I think is brand new and really exciting in American television. And, you know, it's important because you'll see in my book, there's lots of studies about how particularly for working class men, accepting the role, even if you are doing all the father work, just accepting it as part of your identity is difficult for some men. It's just seen as violating some masculine norm. And so, so when you have mainstream, mainstream TV doing that over and over again, it really helps to normalize these changes. So, okay, back to what is it that I want to happen after the end of men? not that men go, you know, some biologist wrote a story, which really was, was a bummer for me because he actually thinks that, um, me, we should just harvest men's sperm, uh, because they cause so much damage. It's like the Steven Pinker idea of like how women are peaceful and lovely, which I don't believe. And, you know, so, so, so all we need is women and we harvest the men's sperm and then just kind of pack them up in, in cages and, Anyway, it made me really look like like really like an asshole. So it was like Hannah Rosen and that guy. Just but actually, that's not what I want at all. I'm not with that guy. What I actually want is what I said earlier. If you, if if I think about my own son, I have two sons and a daughter. Um, and my daughter, I already told you about her. Sort of I want her to live in a world where it's okay for her to ask for a raise in any way that happens to suit her personality. If she's an apologetic type, great. You know, that shouldn't mean she's really girly. If she's like a total aggressive type, That's fine too. Like, it shouldn't be that she has to conform to some specific notion of how to be. Uh, and for men, it's the same thing. So, and even more difficult. So, I've got a son, for example, one of my sons, the older, I don't think my younger one was in the video, but the, the cute curly haired one, um, he is kind of an out of the box kid, you know, hard to imagine him having a nine to five. He, he's kind of lives on his own planet. He loves to write, you know, computer programs and everything. It's really hard for me to imagine him working Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Thursday, Friday, a long job. I imagine that when he grows up, he'll be in a situation where he might take Tuesdays off or sort of wander off to the park on a Tuesday and do his little project. And maybe when he has kids, he'll take every Tuesday off because he'd rather hang out at the playground with his kid than, than do his real job. And, and what my real aim is, is that somebody should pass little Jacob, big Jacob then on the playground and, and turn their head and see him there on Tuesday afternoon, they should not have the thought, poor guy doesn't have a job, what's wrong with that guy? You know, uh, that guy's wife must be suffering. They should have no thoughts at all about it. They should just pass the playground on that Tuesday afternoon and go about their business. So that's where I would like to get to after the end of men. Thank you. So. yeah. So I talked a little long, but we still have time for questions.
0: (laughs) Not at all. Okay, we're going to take some questions now. If you want to come down to the microphones, remember to keep them concise. Only one questions, not so much statements. And while we're waiting for people to come down, I'll kick off with a quick question. I mean, obviously, you're very aware of what's just happened in this country. You've spoke about... Julia Gillard being called deliberately barren, by the way. Deliberately. Was it, was it, yeah, yeah. Was it an accident? It would be sad if she were accidentally
1: you know, barren. That's another category but it's like entirely. Horrifying if she's deliberately barren. Yeah.
0: Um, you know, we, we have a we have a male Prime Minister which is reverting to normal. We have a, a cabinet with only one woman in it. Um, we're not seeing the end of the of men at an institutional, at any of these kind of like powerful political institutions globally, except for some Scandinavian countries,
1: which we should all move to. Yeah,
0: that's right. For so many reasons. Although but...
1: Australia came out ahead. There was a there's a famous uh, what's it called? There's a it's called the billion, the third billion index about women in Australia came out ahead of the Scandinavian countries. Interestingly, oh,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, but, but how do you reconcile this and
1: how much of your research is, um, shows up differences between, between classes? Well, so in the working class, as I said, feels like an upside down world, even though that's counterintuitive. You would think they would be more conservative, but just the way life is lived, it feels very, very different than how it used to be. Um, it doesn't radically surprise me that the top is not all female only because, like, what I'm describing is a 40 year long transformation. It's some like wickedly fast transformation, but you know, men have been at this for like 40,000 years. So, so it's not, um, it's not that things turn over, uh, overnight now in your situation. And there's a similar situation in Germany where I think, you know, um, somebody in the social democratic party was with a reporter and told her that he would like to see her in a dirndl, which is a word like barren, like who uses the word dirndl. But anyway, um, (laughs) and, and, and this, and a similar thing happened, which, is that she then wrote a story like the fact there is some hope for me in the fact that 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 Julia can, Gillard, Gillard 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 I always say that wrong <laughs> Gillard and I shouldn't call her Julia because that actually is sexist the way everyone calls her Julia um, is able to sort of then give this speech which makes it clear to everyone that the world as it exists is and the, and the way that people like Abbott think which is that women are not maybe suited for leadership is like a dinosaur kind of thinking so at, to me at least you know even if we don't have the numbers which we don't have yet we 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 at least have outlets where we can keep saying, this is dinosaur thinking. This is just not going to last. Like, it's not going to last. It's inevitable, so just accept it. Okay. All right. We have a question down here. Hi.
0: Hi, Anna. Hi. Thank you very much for your speech today. Sure. I Mm -hmm. know you've mentioned the glass ceiling once uh, in your presentation, but – and that you've just said there with women getting into positions of power is going to take a couple of generations – what do you think about the countervailing force that sometimes is noticed in, uh, especially uh, high corporate kind of jobs or in politics, where you see women who do break the glass ceiling and then let the shards of glass fall upon the women below?
1: You mean they're not supportive for women? Yes. Yeah, so, so there, this is actually, like there are numbers to this phenomenon, which is that women tend to be um, competitive with other women, when they're in token mode, so like if you have the sense that there's only like one or two places for a woman, you see other women as your direct competition. And the way to get out of token mode is to reach something like a third. So, so they show that you know they, the people of like sociologists have done you know like sort of institutional studies, and that once you reach the point of a third, then the the existence of women becomes normalized. And they they don't any longer see each other as a threat. And by the way, I will add that I I, I don't see this as like a steady forward march of history. Like There are some industries, for example, finance industry, which are really, really difficult for women to break into, but they're difficult to break into both for, because they're run by, by macho dudes who are all about like, you know, who makes the most money. Cause all of, if you take the top percent, the super uber rich, they are all men. But they're also, um, there's also the problem that that survey after survey shows that women don't care as much about making money. That when you ask women what they want out of jobs, it's always job satisfaction meaning, stuff like that. And so, you know, then you're back to the Cheryl Sandberg questions, which is like maybe we just have to accept that there are certain industries and certain ways of gaining power that are never gonna be as interesting to women as they are to men.
0: Okay. All right, yep. Do you want one? Thanks.
1: Uh, yeah, um, enjoy your talk. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. Um, I have an alpha wife, and I'm pretty cool with that. Um, my, my question comes to... Did you I, say you have an alpha wife and you're okay with that? Yeah.
0: Oh, all right. I, I learned that term today. <laughs> yes. Um, my
1: question relates to my 11-year-old daughter, who, like every father, I assume, thinks is destined for great things. As a father, though, in this age, what advice
0: do you have for me? What sort of behaviour should my wife and I be modelling for her so that she can go out and achieve everything she can.
1: Um, so, so the, so the thing, you know, if you have an alpha wife, you're already moder- mo- modeling kind of, you know, there's no assumptions in your household that like, you're the main breadwinner. You know, if there's no assumptions, you're already starting out on a good foot. And, and what I've thought about doing with my daughter is just making her aware, right? So I start by, you know, there's no assumption that my husband's the breadwinner or I'm the breadwinner or I'm always the one taking care of the kids. That's just obvious in the way we live our day to day life that we, we both, you know, we naturally gravitate to certain things, but we're both in charge of, you know, the outside world and the domestic world. Um, but then I also sort of want her to have a realistic sense of things, right? So you always read these stories of women who, you know, are like 43 and they, you know, they, they're sort of, you know, they work so hard on their career and then it's difficult to have children or something. Like, I just want to explain to her, we're in this transition period. You will still be penalized for, you know, behaving in certain ways. Nonetheless, I don't want you to think it's girlish to ask for a raise. You know, i Maybe this is confusing as information, but I want her to be very conscious of the world as it is today, that it's a transition point to a world that, that will be very easy for her, but that we're not there yet. And she can negotiate her pocket
0: money. Oh, no, yes. the, uh, babysitting, the money, babysitting money. The babysitting money. <laughs> Which <laughs> yes. is great. I may do it with
1: someone who's like, I don't know, you guys don't know, well, I'm not going to say this on stage. But then actually, doesn't the she start <laughs> negotiating with, with you? Yeah.
0: Good. Great. She's good.
1: Look, women just can't get the words out of their mouth. the the amount Mm. of money women lose because they don't negotiate their first salary. Another Mm. thing that's well studied that, you know, it's something like, it's a vast difference. It's like 59% of men, I don't know if I'm getting these numbers right, but it's something like 6% of women and 59% of men do not ask for more money because women are just grateful that they got their first job and men always ask for a raise and then that carries on over a lifetime. You know that if you are, you know, starting out at a certain level for your first job, that's... It's going to carry on with you for your second, third, fourth job. Go ahead. Sorry. Hi. Uh,
0: Thanks for the talk. Um, So you've discussed the economic ascendancy of women. I was just wondering if you did any research into other outcomes such as happiness. Because I know there was a key 2009 study, which the paradox of declining female happiness, which showed that women's happiness over 30 years has declined in absolute terms and relative to men. And there's also data coming out now that's showing that women are suffering more depression and anxiety compared to men. And and it's speculated that this might have to do with uh, more pressure on women to have perfect careers, perfect marriages, be perfect mothers, to look good. Just wondering if you had anything. thoughts It's on
1: that. 100% true. That's why what I'm describing here is not a feminist triumph. It's just like the way of the world. Uh, one of the downsides of this, uh, and I write about it in the book, women are much less happy now than they were in the 70s for exactly the reasons that you say. Uh, part of this is because women don't give up spheres when they gain spheres. So the more that women have... Uh, you know, I talk to women who make millions of dollars more than their husbands, and they still see the house as their responsibility. So women don't tend to relinquish things You know, as they add things and it's just becomes this impossible pressure. So you now have, you know, 17 different spheres that you're competing in. And just think about what that's like if you had cornered a woman in 1972 and said like, Oh, listen, in 2013, you know, you're going to be able to have whatever job you want. You know, you're going to go to medical school. You know, you're going to do whatever you want but you're gonna be less happy. Like it wouldn't have made any sense to them. It's just like an unintended consequence of the rise of women is this growing unhappiness. you
0: know one interesting thing about that data, which I actually looked really closely at one point, um, Hannah, is that there is one group of women in the States which bucks that trend and has
1: had rising happiness, which is African-American women. That's an interesting phenomenon. Right. Um, the theories about, for example, someone has compared equal income, poor black women and poor white women, and poor white women are, are the first uh, women in American history to die younger than their mothers, to have a shorter lifespan. Yes. Um And one theory about why that is is because black women... Um, have, have, have the trends that I'm describing have been true in black America since the 70s. And, and this is just a theory that black women own their power in the matriarchy. They're not uncomfortable about it the way white women has, they're sort of past this transition. And so it's all a matter of identity. It's like they right. have accepted, you know, they're struggling in many, many ways, but they have accepted like what their life is and where meaning comes from. And so they're just much steadier than, I, I don't know that this is true, but it struck me as a really interesting mm. guess as to, why, uh, why they would be the happiest.
0: One economist said it was to me because, it was because they were getting married less. <laughs> yes, that might be true. <laughs> but, um, anyway, I think we have... Well, we probably have time for just one quickly, one more. Thanks. Sorry. Oh, on the oh. top. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> There's been a whole... S- I'm so sorry. Gosh, who's been standing there for longer? <laughs> okay. Can I just ask a quick question about... Uh the the end of men when it comes to uh, the the statistics on violence against women, um, the statistics of rape and domestic violence, and what do you think the impact of this very exciting to my mind research of yours might have on that? Do you think there could even be a backlash against women? Because that is one area in which women are just not equal to men? There's still that physical element?
1: Uh, three things to say. One, since you started with the word statistics, um, I, you know, every time I say this, people get mad, but it's just true. There is vastly less violence against women it, that has been dramatically declining in the last 12 years. And the reason, I'm not saying it's not there. There, it's, it's dramatically declined because women are not financially dependent on men. So in the way that you used to be stuck, say, in a house or a bad marriage with a guy who was beating up on you, that situation is no longer true. That said, there's also a tremendous backlash. There's a new book, which I, I just reviewed, which is called Angry White Men, and, and in which he, uh, this guy, Michael Kimmel, who writes a lot about male-female relations, catalogs the hatred of a certain a certain class of men, particularly post-divorce men, uh, and this great men's rights movement, which I don't know if you have an equivalent here, there is in some parts of Europe, uh, against women, and it will just like, it will, it will just chill your spine to read some of the ways that they blame their downfall. You know, like one of the chapters is called The Black Woman Stole My Job. And it's like, you know, the problem with that sentence is who said it was your job? Like, where does the my come from? But there is this tremendous way in which people blame women for all of these sort of larger, their own sense of hopelessness and powerlessness. So that's the backlash part.
0: Okay. I feel really bad about this. So can you use a really quick question and we'll do a quick answer and we we'll, yes. Oh, um, I'll answer it okay.
1: more shortly, sorry. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yep.
1: Okay. Um, I worked uh, for uh, many years in high-value computer sales. I spent a lot of my life negotiating and my comment on your scripts would be, that script number three is a no-brainer for men and women. That is the way business should be done, showing value and putting yourself forward as a person who offers value, whether or not you're asking for a raise. And you think um, for men and women both? I think for men and women both. Right. I think that's the way people should communicate. Um, and my, my question is, uh, are you optimistic about the future? And if so, why? <laughs> There's two different ways this could go, and one is terrible and one is good. Um, you know, the good way is what I described, sort of, a you know, opening of gender roles like we see in these TV shows. And the bad way is that men and men, particularly of a certain class, just kind of drop out, literally. Like, they're not fathers. They're not finding jobs. They are just kind of a disappeared generation, which is what a lot of our top economists worry as the biggest social problem we will face in the next few years. It won't, it, it will be, you know, the problem of men of a certain class drop out and being angry I'm
0: so sorry we don't have time for more questions if you do I'm sorry. go and get a book at the signing uh Hannah's about to sign books in the concert hall south foyer you might be able to get in a very quick question then I'm sorry we ran out of time And just before you go, just a couple more things. Um, This evening, Hannah is also on the panel, The World Is Not Ready for Women in Power, with Anne Summers, amongst other people. And you can see copies of this on the YouTube channel for Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Thank you, Hannah Rosen.